The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to the Provoke Podcast. I am Arthi Shaw. I will be your host for today's episode in which we feature Mike Paul, who is president of the Reputation Doctor LLC. Mike is known for having expertise in crisis and reputation management, and he's also been an advocate for DEI within the industry. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Artie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so let's okay, let's start with one of the pressing issues that the industry is facing right now. And there's a lot of them because this year has been yes. full, full of all kinds of um, unexpected issues. But let's first talk about the ENI because I know you've, you've, you've been um, kind of an advocate for the changes that need to happen in this, in this area. And of course, you know, is, is, and we'll, we'll have a link to this in the show notes, Provoke, we did a, a story on what needs to change, which, which did feature Mike. Um, but but let, let, let's, let's hear from you, Mike. What, what needs to change? And let, let's start with agencies. How do agencies need to rethink the position of the, the chief DEI officer in 2020 to actually impact the numbers? Because as we've seen, they haven't changed much. Well, thank you, Artie. I've been uh, counseling clients as well as helping pro- with various pro bono efforts in advertising, marketing, and, and the corporate world as well. And some of them are moving forward, uh, thank God, finally, including with the board level. So my philosophy is simply this, uh, down up doesn't work, uh, up down always works. That's where the power is. So you need to start at the board level, the C-suite level, and the senior executives first. We've had for decades in the advertising and PR communities, for example, uh, scholarship programs, even with traditionally black colleges, Going back decades, uh, we've had everything from $1,000 to $10,000 or $20,000 scholarships coming out of our professions in, in advertising and marketing and, and public relations for decades. Uh, we've had uh, entry-level professionals and mid-level professionals of color in sprinkles, as I like to say, a few mm-hmm. um, every single year that is announced. We've had programs that give scholarships uh, for more than 20 years, but still not having a CEO that's black uh, or a global practice leader that's black or a national practice leader that's black coming from those programs that started over 20 years ago. It doesn't take 20 years to be a VP in PR. Some people become a VP in PR, for example, after two or three years. Yep. Right. So when we then ask for one person, VP or above, who's black to be hired by each firm within the next year and only five agree, that's a problem. Now, let's give some credence to the five firms that agreed to that proposal that I put together. Edelman agreed to it. Uh, BCW agreed to it. Um, Weber Shamwick agreed to it, um, Golan agreed to it, and Current Global agreed to it. By the way, three of those firms came from one holding company, right. IPG, thanks to Andy Polanski's um, push uh, to, to get them involved, and I thank him for that. And Richard Edelman 
personally pushed. By the way, he's already fulfilled his commitment with uh, a recent hire that uh, was announced. Um, imagine if each firm, there's over, there's hundreds of mm -hmm. firms and PR counsel, for example. Imagine if each one just gave us one. We'd have probably over 300 black executives in one year coming into the industry. That's doable. Everyone can do that. The problem is we have prejudiced and some racists who are still not seeing, even after Deloitte and McKinsey did the studies, when you do this from a best practices approach from intern to board member and every level in between, on average, you make one third more money. Who doesn't want to make one third more money? This isn't just about doing the right thing. This is about business. Mike, and, 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 I'm, and I'm glad that we, we, we gave kudos to the five firms that, that made this commitment. I, I'm curious for the ones that haven't made the commitment. Are they giving you a reason? Like what? Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm curious to hear that. Legal won't let us do it. Hmm. Oh, you know, we can't make guarantees. What if we don't fulfill it? What does that mean? We all have goals. Your board and your C-suite gives you goals every single year. Sometimes you hit the mark, sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. But the goal is to have a commitment, a quantifiable goal with a deadline, which go look at the DAA principles, for example, Diversity Action Alliance, right? With all the firms and all the corporations, all of the, everybody that's in PAGE and everyone in PR Council, that's hundreds upon hundreds of organizations, right? See what they committed to. Read their language. There's no quantifiable goals. There's no deadlines. And this one thing that I asked is the reason why I quit. They said they didn't want to do it. I was, I was a senior advisor to DAA. For more, by the way, DAA has been in formation for a year before it was formally announced. So for two years now, they haven't done anything. They like to copy other people's news and retweet it. And every single time they do, I say, well, that's nice, but how many people have you hired? Mm -hmm. How many black executives, BP or above, have you hired? And now I'm not the only one that's tracking it. Every civil rights organization, every advertising association, every PR association, every senior executive of color, lawyers and others are also tracking every single hire that is announced in the trades. So for example, when you say you make a commitment, but the last eight people in a row you hired are white men at the VP or above level, that's a problem. Yeah. So have you had conversations with folks who have been in these DNI roles for several years? I mean, it's been at least five years that most, most of the large agencies anyway have had someone in, in, in this role in some capacity. And, and what, what was holding them, like what was holding these organizations back from fulfilling you know, this, this goal of having people of color, in particular black professionals in leadership roles and in what will change moving forward? I mean, it sounds like one thing that will change is, is people are just doing it. Like the five firms you mentioned, they are just going out there and making the hires rather than giving excuses, which you know, we've, we've heard for a really long time. Um, is there anything else organizationally that, that has to change or that is changing to, to help the industry have more diversity at the top moving forward? Well, first I wanna clarify, 
that there are people that we know that are in our industry. You don't have to have had a name like chief diversity officer to have been in your job, which included, for example, if you're a black woman, a boss saying, see if you can hire more people that look like you. We know people that are in our industry who've been doing this already for 30 years, 30 years. But no one sat up at a panel or at an awards banquet. And awards are horrible. Anyone that's getting an award for diversity today should be ashamed when we have 2% or less in the executive ranks. Just absurd. But um, we have people that have been HR directors. They didn't have the term chief diversity officer, right? The same way that they used to call somebody a Negro versus black today. It's just semantics. But if you've been in an HR senior executive position and been a person of color, part of your job was to hire more people of color, not just yourself, if you were sitting on a cabinet. So it is just to say, how many people have you hired in the last year, in the last five years, in the last 10 years? If the answer is zero, we know that job is covered. We know that job is toothless. We know that job doesn't have a budget. Mm. Isn't it ironic that now that we have a new civil rights movement, suddenly the chief diversity officer position is one of the most uh, sought after just over the last eight months. Yeah. But you're not saying you want a new practice head. You're not saying you want a new COO. You're not saying you want a president or a CEO that's of color or black. You're saying you want a chief diversity officer where the data shows that these positions are toothless and have not resulted in anywhere close to seeking to match the demographics of which a organization operates, is headquartered, and served. That's the best practices approach to this entire issue of diversity, equality, and inclusion. You're supposed to match, seek to match the demographics of which you're headquartered, operate, and serve. Hmm. So let's use New York City as an example. New York City is almost three quarters people of color. What does that mean when you have 2%? It's a crisis. So the solution should include now, which is what I'm telling clients, anyone new who's coming into your board, you have to set and announce a quantifiable goal and deadline of seeking to have 50% of your board executives of color. Any new hire that's an executive, VP or above, anywhere, you need to be seeking 50%. Why do I say 50%? Because if you're at 2% and you understand math and statistics and analytics and data, how long is it gonna take you to get to, to, let's say one third? If you start with 50% of anyone new that you hire now and you're at 2%. They don't like intelligent answers. They hope that you're going to be satisfied with a news release or a panel or a consultant or training. Training doesn't work either. Why? Because if you're a racist, you're not going to change after a four-hour or two-hour training session. You need to be fired. You need to be replaced. How do you get more board members of color, especially black on your board if you're an association or a corporation or an agency? You voluntarily ask white men, especially, who have the largest numbers on these boards, if you are truly committed, are you willing to step down? Are you willing to give your seat? 
for someone of color to take your seat? Or is your ego or hubris going to say no? That's courage. That's doing the right thing. We have examples of such that have been in the news recently as well. And there will be more pressure for that to happen because that's the only way you're going to get there. We have people that are in our associations that for 10 years, white Republican conservative men who have paid lip service to this issue, who are still sitting in those seats, running the associations that govern our industry. That's absurd. They need to be voted out or had pressure to step down. And they know who they are. That's how you bring change. So, so let, let's talk a little bit about, about brands then and the role that clients play. Because, you know, as, as, as many folks have been saying in this industry for a long time, the agencies will really feel the pressure when clients start demanding that their account teams look more like, you know, demographically, right, the, the people they're trying to reach. And, you know, we've seen a few examples. You know, I think, you know, Tarad Neptune has been quite, quite vocal about this. HP um, is another example. I, anecdotally, I've heard people say that, you know, the diversity question moved from, you know, like number 12th on an RFP to number three. What, what are you seeing? Are you seeing clients putting increased pressure on their agency partners? Well, let's use Sarat uh, as an example. He thrust himself into uh, the public in speaking out to say that this is an important issue, and I admire him uh, for doing so. Uh, but Tarad has had private conversations uh, and messages sent to him by people like me who say things like, Tarad, is the firm that you have now as your agency of record fulfilling what you said that they were going to do? What is it, four or five years ago now? Have people left some of these agencies when you first had your number count, for example, and maybe they might be down nine or 10 people of color who are no longer at that firm? We're really good in the trades of announcing someone new coming into an organization. But when they leave, we need to do follow-up for people to know that person's not there anymore. So when an EVP, for example, gets hired at a top 10 agency, right, and a year later, they leave more quietly, right? And they're asked to leave more quietly. We've got to do the investigative journalism to find out that person's not there anymore. Why did they leave? What, what about the young people that are still in that company who looked up to that person, who are now themselves considering leaving because that person isn't there anymore? Those are the tough questions that we need to be asking each other, like iron sharpening iron to get better. We put our heads down and we are complacent with a lot of the things that are going on that we know that are wrong. HP needs to answer on a quarterly basis, not just once a year, how these agencies are doing. Same with Lenovo, same with Verizon, same with USAA. There were, there were more than a half dozen to a dozen corporations who over the last five years said, we changed things. And the question now is, Several years later, what happened? What's the transparency about how many people of color are working on these accounts? How many of them are bosses? How many of them run P&L? And are you willing when they're not meeting the uh, deadlines and the numbers needed to fire them? Or at least publicly shame them again, as you did in your memos, 
to say, hey, it's been three years. They're still falling short. They need to do more. If we don't do that, then the rules mean nothing. Then the news that you made and the courage that you gained in doing so means nothing because you have to hold everyone accountable. So I, I, I'm mindful of time and there's two other topics that we wanted to, to cover off. So let's, let's move on. Um, although there's of course much more to say here and like, I'm sure you'll be back to, to talk more about that. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about your area of expertise crisis. I mean, as, as everyone that's listening to this knows, I mean, 2020 has been just, you know, it's just been one, one thing after another. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've seen a lot of folks, you know, as you and I have talked about you position the industry as, you know, we're all crisis communicators now. And, um, this is something that's not a, a nice to have. It's something that everyone needs to have in their, in their repertoire of skills. Um, given the, the, the pace at which I don't believe that. Yeah. So, so I'm curious to hear as, as someone who has, this is your area of expertise. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, my thought is always stay in your lane. Be truthful. If you're, if, look, we've won accounts. I'll give you a little bit of the secret sauce of how sometimes we win accounts because sometimes they make it easy because people don't do the right thing. So if you're a top 10 crisis firm, whether you're a global firm from a holding company or a boutique firm, and through our intelligence gathering and due diligence, we find out that several members of your team are faking it, as in they're not true crisis experts. Before we give our ideas, we give that to the potential client that we're pitching. I have walked into a pitch from one of the top firms in the world that we were competing against to get a global account and had four people on a team of six for a crisis account that they were currently working on. And I gave the client two different versions of their bios that were in decks that we got our hands on. And I said, oh, you could, this firm, these are the people that are also on the team that are uh, competing for the business, yes. Well, then you might want to answer this question. Which bio is true? Is this person a mid-level HR professional who's working on these uh, internal communication issues? Or with this bio that's been redone with a different number of years working in the business as well off, it only says that they're a crisis person on this one. So which one is true? And of course, the prospective client goes, well, that's not right. I said, no, it's not. So if you can't trust even their bio, how can you trust their ideas to be true? So ultimately, the currency that you're selling in a crisis with any client relationship is trust. So if you give me an opportunity in an art of war way to do due diligence to find out that you're the biggest liar in the industry, Starting with just who you say your team is and their expertise, we're going to use that against you every single time. And we're going to tell the prospective client, if we can do it just on a pitch like this, you don't think we could find out that information for you truthfully with your competitors? It's part of what we do. You don't think that would be a competitive advantage to find out that they've been lying and doing things inappropriately and how we can do it better? That's an example of where our business is right now. We spin and lie so much that when you have a firm or an executive 
who stands on truth with courage every single time becomes a key differentiator. It's not supposed to be a key differentiator. The majority of people are supposed to be telling the truth and speaking truthfully to their clients. Nobody who is in this pandemic can honestly say, if you don't do crisis communications day to day, that everyone's a crisis communicator now. That's absurd. That's a lie. You shouldn't be saying that. You should be honest. You should say, there are areas within our firm that aren't busy right now because the crises are taking over the business that we had in those units. That's honest. That's how you build trust. That's how someone wants to be attracted to you. And you could say that in our crisis unit, either you have gotten new talent to increase your expertise in that crisis division, or you have several people or teams that have been working who are available now, who have the actual expertise to work with these organizations. But even that is a lie that I'm hearing within the industry. And I call it out every day. It's absurd. Everyone's not busy. Firms are laying off a lot of people, many of which do not work in crisis communications. There are CEOs that I have caught lying about how they're truly doing in this business, and then worse. I see a number of CEOs saying, 2021 looks like things are going to be much better. That's a lie. Most firms are not doing better. What is that, a Trump-like answer? You want to make something up because you don't want to say the truth, which is there's going to be further cuts before the end of the year? So what's, what's today's date, the 5th? Mark this down and see if some of these predictions come true. There will be more people laid off before Christmas. The early part of 2021 will not be shaking trees for new business for most firms. Most people are fearful to just be able to pay their mortgage or their rent right now, the holiday shopping season is going to be a disaster unless we discount prices so low that people can afford to do so. There are people to tell their family members that they're doing fine and they're not doing fine financially, with their job, with their heat or electricity potentially turning off soon. That's where America is today. That's the truth. And if you think that turns into bigger budgets, then you're also a part of the lie. That's my opinion. So, okay. A lot, a lot there. And, and I think part of, in, in my important understanding, to be said. Well, well, let, well, let's go back to the, to the crises. I think the idea, right, is that not necessarily that everybody is a crisis expert, but everyone is having to, we're, we're rewriting the crisis playbook. And that playbook that was relevant five years ago, 10 years ago, doesn't necessarily apply in 2020. It, it probably stopped applying a few years ago. We've had people on our stage say that they, you know, they've had people, they, you know, they've been, their organizations have been hit with a crisis. They pulled out the old playbook only to find that none of that stuff applied anymore. So, and, and I think yeah, but what, what are, But what I'd say to that, Artie, is if I were on that panel, give us some examples of the situation so that we could see whether that's true or not. If you're not truly a crisis communicator and you're trying to use the old playbook, as you say, then you shouldn't have been dealing with the crisis in the first place. Because you, if you are truly a top professional in crisis, 
you would know exactly what tool to use. It wouldn't be five years old. You'd know about the new tools, for example, that are being utilized with analytics and data and social media. And social media is not an aside. Social media is media today. When you have a client, for example, when you bring up Facebook as being an important tool that we need to be utilizing for a client, a global client, a top corporate client, let's say, and they say things back to you like, I'm not on Facebook right now because I don't like some of the things that they're doing. And it's not really important to us. You better be able to shoot out a statistic based on your expertise with Facebook, not putting it up and down like a family member. You're supposed to understand Facebook as well as Facebook if you're a crisis communicator or you're dealing with technology. You're supposed to be able to say, do you know that more than 65% of all news is read on Facebook? Or someone doesn't wanna be on Fox News. And you say, okay, politics aside, are you running for public office? No, but you want eyeballs and people to see your product and see your services and talk about the things that you're doing. Well, yes, there's a lot of people that watch Fox News. So it's my job to counsel them to understand the effectiveness and importance of such. What we don't have already is enough counselors. I think with the pandemic, a truism is that not that everyone is now a crisis communicator, that's a lie. Everyone is facing a new set of circumstances and within your expertise, you seek to be the best at doing what you do best, but don't suddenly fake being a crisis person. That's absurd. Get to know the tools that you know best better than you ever have before. The time to invest in self in the middle of this pandemic is now. Learn more about analytics. Learn more about social media. Learn more about TikTok. Learn more about all the tools that you have been saying you're gonna to get to, but you haven't. That doesn't mean you're a crisis expert. By the way, let me give you an example. This came up just this week with my staff with several prospective clients asking. They said they went to several other firms and they said that our prices were very high. And I said, what are the firms you went to? And they were not firms that truly specialized in crisis. Top crisis communication, com communicators have been billing over $1,000 an hour for many years. You guys don't write about it. We've been billing over $1,000, that's low, for many years. We're considered the brain surgeons of our industry for a reason. You're highly skilled, you know a lot of the basics, you've got further skill on top of it to become a surgeon within your specialty. That's what crisis communications is. That's what the young people need to hear too. You don't just become a crisis communicator by putting up a website that says that you do it. There's so many firms doing that today. There's even CEOs of top 20 firms who said things in the pandemic like, we're all crisis communicators now. That's absurd. No, you're not. You're not. So, so when, and when, you're, when you fall short of doing so, yeah. and your client then says, but that's what you said, Guess who are the firms that, you know how many phone calls we get I, I of firms totally, that went in first and then, they, and then they fell short? 
Yep. No, I, I totally know your, 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 your point. Your so it's point, nonsense. Yeah, no, your, 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 your point is, is well made. And, and I mean, it'd be interesting to bring some of those folks on here to, to kind of talk about what, what they mean by that, because I hear this all the time as well, right? And I, and I hear this from a lot of specialty firms, right, that have a, that have a sector expertise that, you know, can handle mild crises, but, you know, if something serious happens, you know, they, they, they call in, they call in the experts and many of them will still admit to that. And my understanding, again, is that some of these folks are basically saying that, like, you know, your, your run of the mill, don't want to say run of the mill, but, you know, your, your, your media pitcher, right? Like, it's going out there trying to get their, their client in the news is suddenly Publicist. facing, yeah, well, you know, they're, they're suddenly facing a, a news environment unlike anything they faced before, right? I mean, they can't just say, oh, there's a crisis right now. Let me, let's just wait this out and then we'll, start, we'll, we'll resume our product pitching two weeks from now. Suddenly they are in a mode where it is almost, it is really, really difficult to break through. And so they're having to refine their skills against this state of being in a constant crisis. So I, I, my understanding is they're not saying that they are the crisis experts that are charging $2,000 an hour. They're saying that they- More. Or, or, or more. Um, they're saying that they have to, um, they're having to redefine their own skill set on the backdrop of a crisis. Yeah, but Artie, here's what I'm saying. And I know we didn't want to talk about other things. Uh, I'll just put it in one soundbite for you. Those are people that were faking it before. Now what they're saying is it's more difficult to fake it because you have to be more authentic and you really have to know what you're doing today because the things that we used to throw against the wall like spaghetti and hope that it's stuck isn't sticking anymore. And my answer to that is I agree with them. That's true. But you never should have been doing it in the past in the first place. You didn't have a line of demarcation where you got your hand slapped by saying that you were a crisis person when you weren't. It's risky to do that with a client. We get more phone calls than ever now from clients telling us that that's the kind of counselors they had before and they made mistakes. And we also have phone calls for some of these smaller boutiques or sometimes larger uh, corporations uh, from holding companies that are some of the top five or six uh, PR firms in general who are asking us if we've signed a side agreement because they can't do it that way anymore. That's what I'm saying back. We get those phone calls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, you're I, you're you're hearing a different side of it, right? Than than sometimes what I hear from from this end. So, okay, let's. Because um, they have, have to admit the truth if they want us to work. I say, what happened? <laughs> yep. We faked it. It didn't work. We need help. We don't want to lose a client. Can you come so, in and help us now? Can yes. we? Let's. We we we're gonna have to wrap up in about in a, in a couple of minutes because we're we're going over time. But I do want to get your perspective on one thing because you've already you've already hinted at this. Let's talk a little bit about the pandemic very very quickly. Um, you know, you, you've already said you predicted that there's going to be more, more job cuts. And, and I will say that on my end, I am hearing, you know, agencies coming to me saying things are looking rosy. Everybody's hiring again. Our, our jobs yes. are back up to pre-pandemic rates. But your, your prediction is there will be another cut. And I'm also curious about what the office will look like, because I am also hearing some agencies are quite eager to kind of get back in the time machine and bring 2019 back. And others are rethinking the future and redefining what that workplace will look like. What's your prediction on this front? And I'm going to cut you off in just a couple of minutes because we, we're, we're at No problem. I'll give you two quick, side, two quick sound bites. Number one, there's four legs of the pandemic. Childcare, safe schools, safe offices, safe public transportation. We don't have, they all work together and they all depend on each other. We don't have that yet. What does that mean? Virtual and remote work is where we're going to be for a long time. That makes older leaders uncomfortable. My firm, me professionally, 
I owned a firm before I owned this one. We've been doing it for 28 years. People used to laugh at that. Now they call us and ask us how to do it. Top firms, we don't know what we're doing. Help us to learn how to do it. So the virtual world is here to stay. Closing commercial and corporate offices need to happen. Well, we have tough lease agreements. There are people who are pros at breaking lease agreements. They used to put them together, find them. You have to pay them good money. If you have 75 offices in 52 countries right now, you're bleeding money. You have to change your paradigm. Paradigms have to change. It's not going to be one to four as far as what you pay someone and what you expect them to bill out. Those days are gone. Older leaders, some of which, because they're out of touch, need to retire. And younger leaders who understand these things need to be able to lead. That includes on our association boards as well. We're not going back to anything similar to what we had before. The world has changed. You have to accept that. So then what do you do with a new paradigm? That new paradigm has to be more digital than ever before. You have to be comfortable with people working all over the world off-site. That means you need to give up the control of looking and seeing someone and standing over them. And you need to embrace what we're doing right now, which is Zoom communication and online communication, either face-to-face and conference calls and phone calls, and hold people accountable to their time. Going back to, if you've switched off of, more of a legal paradigm, for billing is important. Why? You have to track what people are doing. Someone likes to go for two hours and watch TV and eat out of their refrigerator, but you're not on top of what they're doing. That's on you. But you need to do it in a way that encourages them to be accountable for their time each day. And if you do that well, your people will answer and do good work for you. I've been doing it for many years. Clients love it. When we're able to come more face-to-face, we need to be with the clients, not sitting in an office. That paradigm has been used by management consulting companies and other top consultants for decades before us. Some of us have had them as clients and still are not utilizing it. That's insane to me. Embrace technology, learn the tools that you don't know, or get out of the way. Because the bulldozer's coming, and there are going to be many firms that you're going to be hearing with thin holding companies merging because they don't have the money coming in. That's not just me saying that. That's us doing intelligence gathering and knowing that. So, Mike, each of these topics could have been its own episode. So um, we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to dig into some of these a bit more in the future. But for now, thank you. Um, I think this is the first time you've been on our podcast, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, well, yeah, well, I, I'm, it's a pleasure to have you um, and to have your thoughts. And again, I'm sure we'll have you back. To all of our listeners, thank you so much. And um, we will be back in a few shortly. I don't want to give a date, but we'll be back shortly with another episode of, of um, the Provoke podcast. And if you want to follow me, uh, you could follow me on Twitter at ReputationDR. Great, great plug there. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to the Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.